Chapter Seven of Gold in the Sky by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Prisoners. Wherever they were planning to take them, the captors took great pains to make sure that their two prisoners did not escape before they were under way. Greg and Johnny were strapped down securely into acceleration cots. Two burly guards were assigned to them, and the guards were taking their job seriously. One of the two was watching them at all times, and both men held their stunners on ready. Meanwhile, under Doc's orders, the crew of the Jupiter Equilateral ship began a systematic looting of the orbit ship they had disabled. Earlier they had merely searched the cabins and compartments. Now a steady stream of pressure-suited men crossed through the airlocks into the crippled vessel, marched back with packages full of tape records, microfilm spools, stored computer data, anything that might conceivably contain information. The control cabin was literally torn apart. Every storage hold was ransacked. A team of six men was dispatched to the asteroid surface, searching for any sign of mining or prospecting activity. They came back an hour later, long face and empty-handed. Doc took their reports, his scowl growing deeper and deeper. Finally, the last of the searchers reported in. Doc, we scraped it clean, and there's nothing there. Not one thing that we didn't check before. There's got to be something there, Doc said. You tell me where else to look, and I'll do it. Doc shook his head ominously. Townie's not going to like it, he said. There's no other place it could be. Well, at least we have this pair, the other said, jerking a thumb at Greg and Johnny. They'll know. Doc looked at them darkly. Yes, and they'll tell, too, or I don't know Townie. Greg watched it all happening, heard the noises, watched the packing cases come through the cabin, and still he could not quite believe it. He caught Johnny's eye, then turned away, suddenly sick. Johnny shook his head. Take it easy, boy. He didn't even have a chance, Greg said. I know that. He must have known it, too. But why? What was he thinking of? Maybe he thought he could make it. Maybe he thought it was the only chance. There was no other answer that Greg could see, and the ache in his chest was deeper. There was no way to bring Tom back now. However things had been between them, they could never be changed now. But he knew that as long as he was still breathing, somebody somehow was going to answer for that last desperate run of the scavenger. It had been an excellent idea, Tom Hunter thought to himself. It had worked perfectly, exactly as he had planned it, so far. But now, as he clung to his precarious perch, he wondered if it had not worked out a little too well. The first flush of excitement that he had felt when he saw the scavenger blow apart in space had begun to die down now. On its heels came the unpleasant truth, the realization that only the easy part lay behind him so far. The hard part was yet to come, and if that were to fail, he realized suddenly that he was afraid. He was well enough concealed at the moment, clinging tightly against the outside hull of the ranger ship, hidden behind the open airlock door. 
but soon the airlock would be pulled close, and then the real test would come. Carefully, he ran through the plan again in his mind. He was certain now that his reasoning was right. There had been two dozen men on the raider ship. There had been no question, even from the start, that they would succeed in boarding the orbit ship and taking its occupants prisoners. The Jupiter equilateral ship had not appeared there by coincidence. They had come looking for something that they had not found. And the only source of information left was Roger Hunter's sons. The three of them together might have held the ship for hours, or even days. But with engines and radios smashed, there had been no hope of contacting Mars for help. Ultimately, they would have been taken. As he had crouched in the dark storage hold of the orbit ship, Tom had realized this. He had also realized that, once captured, they would never have been freed and allowed to return to Mars. If the three of them were taken, they were finished. But what if only two were taken? He had pushed it aside as a foolish idea at first. The boarding party would never rest until they had accounted for all three. They wouldn't dare go back to their headquarters, leaving one live man behind to tell the story. Unless they thought the third man was dead. If they were sure of that, certain of it, they would not hesitate to take the remaining two away. And if, by chance, the third man wasn't as dead as they thought he was, and could find a way to follow them home, there might still be a chance to free the other two. It was then that he thought of the scavenger, and knew that he had found a way. In the cabin of the little scout ship he had worked swiftly, fearful that at any minute one of the marauders might come aboard to search it. Tom was no rocket pilot, but he did know that the countdown was automatic, and that every ship could run on an autopilot, as a drone following a prescribed course until it ran out of fuel. Even the shell evasion mechanism could be set on automatic. Quickly he set the autopilot, plotted a simple high school math course for the ship, a course the ranger ship would be certain to see and to fire upon. He set the countdown clock to give himself plenty of time for the next step. Both the airlock to the scavenger and to the orbit ship worked on electric motors. The scavenger was grappled to the orbit ship's hull by magnetic cables. Tom dug into the ship's repair locker, found the wires and fuses that he needed, and swiftly started to work. It was an ingenious device. The inner airlock door of the orbit ship was triggered to a fuse. He had left it ajar the moment it was closed by anyone intending to board the scavenger, the fuse would burn. A circuit would open, and the little ship's autopilot would go on active. The ship would blast away from its moorings, head out toward Mars. And the fireworks would begin. All that he would have to worry about then would be getting himself aboard the ranger ship without being detected. Which was almost impossible, but he knew there was a way. There was one place no one would think to look for him, if he could manage to keep out of range of the viewscreen lenses, the outer hull of the ship. If he could clamp himself to the hull somehow, and manage to cling there during blast-off, he could follow Greg and Johnny right home. He checked the fuse on the airlock once again to make certain it would work. Then he waited, hidden behind the little scout ship's hull, 
until the orbit ship swung around into shadow. He checked his suit dials, oxygen for twenty-two hours, heater pack fully charged, soda ash only half-saturated. It would do. Above him he could see the rear jets of the ranger. He swung out onto the orbit ship's hull and began crawling up toward the enemy ship. It was slow going. Every pressure suit had magnetic boots and hand pads to enable crewmen to go outside and make repairs on the hull of a ship in transit. Tom clung and moved and clung again, trying to reach the protecting hull of the ranger before the orbit ship swung him around in the sunside again. He couldn't move fast enough. He saw the line of sunlight coming around the ship as it swung full into the sun. He froze, crouching motionless. If somebody on the ranger spotted him now, it was all over. He was exposed like a lizard on a rock. He waited, hardly daring to breathe, as the ship spun ponderously around, carrying him into shadow again. And nothing happened. He started crawling upward again, reached up to grab the mooring cable, and swung himself across to the hull of the ranger. The airlock hung open. He scuttled behind it, clinging to the hull in its shadow just as Greg and Johnny were herded across by the Jupiter equilateral guards. Then he waited. There was no sound, no sign of life. After a while, the ranger's inner lock opened, and a group of men hurried across to the orbit ship. Probably a searching party, Tom thought. Soon the men came back, then returned to the orbit ship. After another minute, he felt the vibration of the scavenger's motors. He knew that his snare had been triggered. He saw the little ship break free and sneak out in its curving trajectory. He saw the homing shells burst from the ranger's tubes. The scavenger vanished from his range of vision. But moments later he saw the sudden flare of light reflected against the hull of the orbit ship, and he knew his plan had worked, but the ordeal lay ahead. And at the end of it, he might really be a dead man. Hours later, the last group of looters left the orbit ship, and the airlock to the ranger clanged shut. Tom heard the sucking sound of the airtight seals, then silence. The orbit ship was empty, its insides gutted, its engines no longer operable. The ranger hung like a long splinter of silver alongside her hull, poised and ready to move on. He knew that the time had come. Very soon the blast-off and the acceleration would begin. He had a few moments to find a position of safety, no more. Quickly, he began scrambling toward the rear of the ranger's hull, hugging the metal sides, moving sideways like a crab. Ahead, he knew, the viewscreen lenses would be active. If one of them picked him up, it would be quite a jolt to the men inside the ship, but it would be the end of his free ride. But the major peril was the blast-off. Once the engines cut off, the ship would be in free fall. Then he could cling easily to the hull, walk all over it, if he chose to, with the aid of his boots and hand pads. But unless he found a way to anchor himself firmly to the hull during blast-off, he could be flung off like a pebble. He heard a whirring sound, and saw the magnetic mooring cables jerk. The ship was preparing for blast-off. 
automatic motors were drawing the cables and grappling plates into the hull. Moving quickly, Tom reached the rear cable. Here was his anchor, something to hold him tight to the hull. With one hand he loosened the web belt of his suit, looped it over a corner of the grappling plate as it pulled into the hull. The plate pulled tight against the belt. Each plate fit into a shallow excavation in the hull, fitting so tightly that the plates were all but invisible when they were in place. Tom felt himself pulled in tightly as the plate gripped the belt against the metal, and the whirring of the motor stopped. For an instant it looked like the answer. The belt was wedged tight. He couldn't possibly pull loose without ripping the nylon webbing of the belt. But a moment later the motor started whirring again. The plate pushed out from the hull a few inches, then started back again, pulling in the belt. It was a good idea that just wouldn't work. The automatic machinery on a spaceship was built to perfection. Nothing could be permitted to half-work. Tom realized what was happening. Unless the plate fit perfectly in its place, the cable motor would not shut off, and presently an alarm signal would start flashing on the control panel. He pulled the belt loose reluctantly. He would have to count on his boots and his hand pads alone. He searched the rear hull, looking for some break in the polished metal that might serve as a toehold. To the rear the fins flared out, supported by heavy struts. He made his way back, crouching close to the hull, and straddled one of the struts. He jammed his magnetic boots down against the hull, and wrapped his arms around the strut with all his strength. Clinging there, he waited. It wasn't a good position. The metal of the strut was polished and slick, but it was better than trying to cling to the open hull. He tensed now not daring to relax for fear that the blast-off acceleration would slam him when he was unprepared. Deep in the ship, the engines began to rumble. He felt it rather than heard it, a low-pitched vibration that grew stronger and stronger. The ranger would not need great thrust to move away from the orbit ship, but if they were in a hurry, they might start out at nearly Mars Escape. The jets flared, and something slammed him down against the fin strut. The ranger moved out, its engines roaring, accelerating hard. Tom felt as though he had been hit by a ton of rock. The strut seemed to press in against his chest. He could not breathe. His hands were sliding, and he felt the pull on his boots. He tightened his grip desperately. This was it. He had to hang on. Had to hang on. He saw his boot on the hull surface, sliding slowly, creeping back and stretching his leg. Suddenly it broke loose. He lurched to one side, and the other boot began sliding. There was a terrible ache in his arms, as though some malignant giant were tearing at him, trying to wrench him loose as he fought for his hold. There was one black instant when he knew he could not hold on another second. He could see the blue flame of the jet streaming behind him, the cold blackness of space beyond that. It had been a fool's idea, he thought in despair, a million-to-one shot that he had taken, and lost. And then the pressure stopped. His boots clanged down on the hull, and he almost lost his hand grip. 
He stretched an arm, shook himself, took a great painful breath, and then clung to the strut, almost sobbing, hardly daring to move. The ordeal was over. Somewhere, far ahead, an orbit ship was waiting for the ranger to return. He would have to be ready for the braking thrust and the side maneuvering thrusts, but he would manage to hold on. Crouching against the fin, he would be invisible to the viewers on the orbit ship. And who would be looking for a man clinging to the outside of a scout ship? Tom sighed and waited. Jupiter Equilateral would have its prisoners, all right. He wished now he had not discarded the stunner, but those extra pounds might have made the difference between life and death during the blast-off. And at least he was not completely unarmed. He still had Dad's revolver at his side. He smiled to himself. The pirates would have their prisoners, indeed, but they would have one factor to deal with that they had not counted on. For Greg it was a bitter, lonely trip. After ten hours they saw the huge Jupiter Equilateral orbit ship looming up in the viewscreen like a minor planet. Skillfully Doc maneuvered the ship into the launching rack. The guards unstrapped the prisoners and handed them pressure suits. Moments later they were in a section in crew's quarters where they stripped off their suits. This orbit ship was much larger than Roger Hunter's. The gravity was almost Mars normal, and it was comforting just to stretch and relax their cramped muscles. As long as they didn't think of what was ahead. Finally, Johnny grinned and slapped Greg's shoulder. Cheer up, he said. We'll be honored guests for a while. You can bet on that. For a while, Greg said bitterly. Just then the hatchway opened. Well, who do we have here? A familiar voice said. "'Returning a call, you might say. "'And maybe this time you'll be ready for a bit of bargaining.' "'They turned to see the heavy face and angry eyes of Merrill Towney. End of chapter 7